Welcome to Bodies in the Post, where I speak to art makers, product creators, scientists and revolution makers who make us rethink what it is to be human in these post-human times. Here, we get to know the humans behind the creations and their inner worlds that form the basis of what drives them. I'm your host, Lydia Kay, a researcher in this field. Today, we hear from Agnes Questionmark, an Italian artist based in New York who identifies as trans species. Artistically, she is known for her use of marine-like sculptures and bodies of water. She might become a human octopus creature, a mermaid, or a giant squid that is the result of a failed scientific experiment. As well as creating these hybrid creatures, Agnes is known for her performances that push her body to the absolute limit, sometimes staying underwater for extended periods of time. In her personal life, she is also on a mission to become a hybrid being, talking to scientists about how they could change her DNA. She is also transgender, and we talk about how this affects how she feels about the role of her body in her life and also in her art. In this episode, Agnes talks about her desire to become a mother and the process she is undergoing to make that happen. She also talks about her deep love of octopi, her work with Neil Harbison, the real-life cyborg, her current project to create an echolocation organ that she can attach to her body, and her experience of being a model for Gucci and Valentino. We did this interview online, and at times you can hear the occasional noise from the New York City streets in the background. There are links in the show notes to the texts and TED Talk that Agnes mentions. Unfortunately, the very end of this recording got cut off prematurely, but luckily we only had a couple minutes left. But I contacted Agnes and asked her to leave me a WhatsApp voice note to help me round things off, which I've added at the very end. I hope you enjoy. I'm so excited to have you on Bodies in the Post. I'm a big fan of your work and I have been following your work for quite a long time. How is it in New York? Good morning over there for you. Yes, it's a good morning. Yes, it's actually 12. Oh, okay. But it's weird because of the time difference. I have to wake up very early to talk with people in Italy because I work a lot in Italy and I need to work until it's uh, evening for them and it's late morning for me. So around 12 in New York for me, it starts my day because it finished the day in Italy. So no more calls, no more texts. Get the wine out. Exactly. I'm done. I'm, I'm already done. I've done my working day and that's it. No, but for this reason, the days have been really long. So you're doing an MA in New York at the moment. I am, yes. What's your MA title? Integrated Practices. And meanwhile, whilst you're doing your MA, you're also still working in Italy on artistic projects. Yes, in Italy and all over the world. Internationally? Yes, internationally. I'm an international artist. Are you allowed to tell us what you're working on at the moment? Sure. I have an upcoming performance at the Museum of Modern Art in Geneva for an amazing exhibition they curated. They've been working for this show for three years and it's all about transformation and celebration of gender non-conforming, gender non-binary and body modification. And I feel it's one of those shows that really talks about transformation in a genuine way. It's not one of those shows that they just want trans artists to 
To look trendy. To queer bait or yeah, to look trendy. Like I really felt strong and powerful, especially in a city like Geneva, where let's say the average age is very old and people there are like very uptight, like they have their life, you know, and they're very bougie. And they were all so excited. You could feel people walking around the show and everyone kept saying it's a very exciting show. Wow, that's so cool. Because then they understood. So I'm back there to do a performance in an aquarium underwater and then I'm doing a performance in New York. I started this collaboration with an artist here in New York who's called Marco Passaracqua and we started to make these collaborative projects about scientific experiment. So we started with our first experiment and we did an operation. So at that time I had this urge of, I still have this urge of motherhood and I think we have talked about it in our previous conversation, this idea of motherhood, of feeling pregnant and for example the fact that I was so obsessed with the octopus and then I realized that octopus is such a great symbol of motherhood because the octopus anchors itself on top of the eggs and it just stays there and it gives herself her own body her everything to her offsprings. And for my performance at Transgenesis, I think for the first time I was able to see myself as a mother because I started transitioning. Well, Transgenesis, it was such a significant show for you, wasn't it? Because yes. you opened the show, it was in London in 2021. Yes. And it was a performance installation piece and you were embodying this human octopus creature for sort of seven hours a day for 23 consecutive days. Eight hours per day. Eight hours a day. And the day that you started transgenesis was the day that you started your hormone replacement therapy, feminizing hormone replacement therapy. Correct. Yes. That's so symbolic, isn't it? It was. Yes, it was. I feel like it helped me, first of all, to understand myself and to give a statement to myself that I was able to do it. Because trans people, they don't receive enough support from not just the community, the family and government oh my god there is no support so for me my art was a way where i could myself yes you can be whatever you want i was like okay together with my project i'm gonna start changing myself it's significant that you were going through a kind of artistic transformation as human octopus at the same time as your own body was going through a transformation. Yeah, I mean, my work was telling me that a transformation was needed in all sense. And then is when I started to read about posthuman theories and articles on transhumanism and the difference between the two. And I was really interested in the idea of being able to change your body and overcome what you have and the body you are born with. And in a way I was doing it at the same time, either in my private life and in my artistic life. So my private life, I was gaining agency and authority in my own body. And I was claiming myself as a woman, as a female, and with my name Agnes. And on the other side, with my work, I was claiming the potentiality of the human being to become something else, to transform and become an octopus, perhaps. Or just the idea of having that possibility then allows you to think differently, to mm. embrace a sort of fluidity and a transformation also in your daily life that can be identity-wise, behavior-wise, law-wise, society-wise, mm. and embrace this sort of more fluid idea 
Yeah, and it's sort of metaphorical, isn't it, for all sorts of things. You talk quite a bit about the concept of trans species, and there's people who talk about this idea of trans species in that it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as transgender. It doesn't mean that someone is actually becoming another species, but it's it sort of acknowledges and represents the idea that we actually are very fluid with other animals anyway. You know, we're completely dependent on other species, you know, in every sense in terms of medicine and sustainability. All the medicine that we take is like tested on animals or it's from the substance of animals. So trans species as a concept kind of acknowledges that fluidity between us and other species. But I feel like you take it a bit further in your artwork in that you actually become another animal through your art. And you have talked about that also outside of your art in that you want to sort of push to change your DNA and change your inner body in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking about one of the greatest encounter I had was in Texas. I met PhD doctor who is working on a genetic engineer. And it was amazing to talk to her and visit her lab and see that actually there is someone who is taking my ideas that I can transform in a more like artistic and metaphorical way. She's actually putting them into action and she's doing this experiment on her DNA, her human genomes. And yeah, it was just so, so interesting for me to see that my performances could potentially be true. So I started to read about scientific experiments and there are actually transplants of pig's heart. And I've read how in China there is this doctor who is developing artificial wombs. So perhaps one day we will be growing our wombs outside our bodies and we won't need our body anymore. And I find it interesting. I don't take any part for now. I just, I don't know if I agree, I don't agree if it's, what's the word? Ethical ethical or unethical thank you i just find this so interesting because it's happening it's a reality you know we are transcending our body mm. we're really transcending our body and it's not even that far-fetched if you already think about us making test tube babies i don't think it sounds actually that far away that we can create a womb outside of the body that can house a baby but going back to that for a minute, you mentioned motherhood and actually in transgenesis inside the building, there was different performance pieces going on. And you work a lot with bodies of water and sometimes you're completely submerged in bodies of water or it's to do with sea creatures. And you had these octopus fetus octopus human fetuses in water and that again links back to that motherhood that you were talking about you said you'd got really interested in motherhood and that maternal element and talk to us a little bit about that in terms of being a trans woman realizing that you really want to be a mother yeah and the, the difficulties you've had with that realization yeah, I think that came out from a struggle that I realized that I would never be able to have a baby instead of my body. I started to have the need of creating my own my own baby, my own creatures. Through my art, I was able to develop this gestation. I feel like I am a scientist in my studio. I felt like that sort of freedom of creating my own baby. And I was wondering how would my baby look like and why can't we interfere in the embryonic development with a transfusion of another gene in order to have a human baby that is already hybrid and is gonna develop and is gonna have a life as a hybrid creature. Hybrid in the sense of another animal? Yeah, like a proper trans species. Because transgenesis is a fusion of two genes together and they did it for the purpose of scientific experiment. So I was thinking what genetic engineers are, are trying to do now is to target DNA at the earliest stage possible. So my question is if we can target the DNA 
in the very embryonic stage when the DNA is already forming and we can interfere there, can we actually create these sort of entanglements of two different creatures in order for them to survive and thrive? And this connects back to these attempts I'm doing with my friend and artist Marco Passalacqua. And we are developing these attempts together. And they're called attempts because they're all bound to fail. It's a fail attempt, right. in a way. It's still utopian to grow an octopus inside a human womb. You know, maybe in the future we will be able to do it, but now it's still utopian. And something interesting that the scientist I met told me, she was like, because I was throwing at her all these ideas I had. And she was like, Agnes, what I am doing now is try and focus on experiments that you are able to see the result in a lifetime. And that to me was like, maybe I'm dreaming too big. <laughs> maybe I won't be able to see a human octopus in my real life. And that is the struggle I feel. Right. The same struggle of understanding that not even I cannot have a baby in my belly. I cannot have an octopus in my belly, you know. It sounds like for your art, dealing with that and coming to terms with that, that you won't be able to grow a baby inside you. This struggle I felt triggered in me certain questions that I was able then to open up through my work. But a mother doesn't need to be a biological mother. You know, motherhood can be expressed in so many different ways. I feel a mother to my art and I can feel a mother to an animal. I can feel a mother to an audience. Motherhood can be expressed in many different ways. I do believe that. I do believe also like in Donna Haraway's stories of the new communities, make kin, not babies. We don't need to produce. Make kin. Kin, not babies, you know. <laughs> We're too many. We're too many. It's not sustainable anymore. Do you think you will adopt kids one day? I'm trying to have my own. So after doing the hormone therapy, the only thing that was haunting me was uh, the fact that I was not fertile anymore. That is a very personal story I'm telling you. And actually my mom was the one who told me, she told me, okay, Agnes, if you want to do the transition, just preserve your sperm before. And I was like, I don't need that, mom. That was the last thing I was thinking about, of course. Because you were on a journey to take the hormones to feminize. I was so far away from that idea of having children. And then suddenly it became normal for me. I settled down in my new life, new being. Everyone accepted me. I accepted myself. And suddenly I was like, fuck, I will never be able to have my own children. And I know it's a very selfish thing to say, but it just triggered me. So I decided to stop the hormone therapy for three months and freeze my sperm. So it's called the cryopreservation. I did that both in Italy and in America because it's so fast from when they extract it and then insert it in the egg. If I am in the US and the liquid is in Italy, I won't be able to have time to ship it. So I said, just to be sure, I'll do it in Italy and in the US. Well, you're really thinking ahead. You've obviously really planned it, which if you feel that in you, that you know you want to be a parent. For sure. I want to have multiple kids. I'm going to adopt for sure. I always had this idea in my mind to have many kids. But if I can have one from my biology, would be, of course, a lot of people dream is. What's your connection with octopi? Because yes. you clearly have this deep connection to octopi. And I wonder if you can tell us a bit about that as well. 
I do feel very close to octopi. As you can see, my earrings are little octopus. Oh, your earrings. Ah, yes. And you have a little octopus tattoo? No, I have a mermaid. I have sea creatures around. I'm going to get probably a little cuttlefish. But basically, it's because I was born and raised in a boat with my father and my family. And my father is a sailor. Not anymore now because he's kind of old, but he sailed the world for all his life. And so for me, it was the sea world was something very close since my childhood. You know, that's where I grew up. And to me, being close to marine species was very easy and very normal. And I think this made me develop a sort of omnipresent imagination in which I was able to see myself in any kind of animal I wanted. And octopi especially because to me, after reading Donna Haraway and the Toulouse scene, it sort of triggered me as this new symbolic animal for the human being to demolish uh, capitalism, to demolish ideas of binarism, heteronormativity, because the octopus is such a fluid being that can travel and they can change and they can transform and they can repeat this transformation every time they want. They have a very strong intelligence. What struck me about the octopus is that this nervous system, it works different than ours. It's not hierarchical from the brain to the other parts of the body, but it's horizontal. So every nerve has its own capacity to move and develop and think for themselves. That's why tentacles, tentacles come from the Latin word tastare, to taste, to move, and each tentacle has sort of uh, autonomy. And I think it speaks about many things, you know, it speaks about symbiosis between the ecology around you, symbiosis within the ecology that you're made of, because we're part of an ecology inside our body. And uh, yeah, in that moment, I think the octopus became a sort of status quo for me, a sort of new symbol. And I was questioning myself, why don't we have aquatic creature as symbols? You know, why do we have always sort of patriarchy symbols in our society that they don't allow us to think out of the box. Mm. I know that the mermaid is a transgender symbol, the symbol for transgender mm -hmm. individuals, because again, it links to the trans species element in that it shows body fluidity, but also the genitalia is hidden. So it's ambiguous, but it seems to fit so well with your connection to underwater species and to the water itself. You have done work as well with mermaids in the past. You did an exhibition. Hypermarema. That's in Italy. And you did one called Sirenomelia. Sirenomelia, yeah, that was recently. That was in Milan last year. Oh, that was more recent. At Pleshart, actually, yes. There's these beautiful videos of you swimming in a pool in the dark and the pools all lit up and you've got this mermaid tail on which Anthromorph, Constantine, made for you and there's a really symbolic image of you together. Yeah. And it's really beautiful. The way you move is like an actual mermaid on that video. Yeah. <laughs> I know that you've moved on from mermaids but can you tell us a little bit about that and why is it that you moved on from that as well? I was always interested in mermaids because of my sailor a sort of idolization of the sea. I was like enchanted from like the romanticization of being a sailor and having the mermaid fit in love with the sailor, you know, the very cheesy and romantic relationship, sea voyage. And then I was reading of the sirens from Homer and how they are actually revealed as monsters. So you have this sort of uh, depiction of mermaid, not just as a beautiful creature, but also this monster creature that sort of hypnotizes you and controls you. And then more recently, I was reading the story from Drexia. 
who talks about the subversion of colonialism. What happens is that the enslaved people from Africa to the US, they were shipwrecked and the women, they still were pregnant and they would die and shipwreck in the middle of the sea. But yet these babies were born under the water. So Drexia tells the story of these babies, these human babies that are born under the sea and they come weaponized, they come back to fight the the American Mm -hmm. who enslaved their mothers. This hybridization talks about many things and it was very interesting to develop this project with Antro because she's also gender non-conforming, transgender, and at the time for us was like a very strong opportunity to work together and to bound as two trans artists and this usually doesn't really happen. You mean Anthromorph, who's also known as Constantine, who made your tale? Yes, exactly. Anthro, yes, Constantine. I had them on the podcast. I know, yes. I, I really love Constantine. So I was asked to do the performance and I was following them on Instagram and I got this budget for the performance and I was like, why don't we do this? You know, I really love your images because they make these Photoshop images and I would see them clearly as a costume. I would see me wearing it. I was like, this is me. And I said, can you make it? Can you actually make it? And they said, yes, of course. So they made it. For the first time, they introduced me to the silicon work, to the prosthetic work, before I would just use ceramic in my work and ask help to make costumes. And I went to visit them in Athens to see how they were working on the costume. And it was so crazy to see them working with silicon because they really have sort of easiness to work with. And they're very messy, but they make it look so easy for them. It's so natural. And in Greece, like it was so sunny, it was a beautiful experience. And then from that moment, I started to use silicon. I really thank Constantine for introducing me to silicon and make it look so easy to use. And then I invited them back to Rome in my studio to try and test the tale. And we worked together in my studio in Rome and we went to the thermal bath. Mm-hmm to try the tale. It was so beautiful. It was, to me, it was more important the connection with Constantine than the actual work. It was more about that to me, really bonding ourselves because we're so close in our work, in our life. And it was really for us an excuse to work together more than the outcome, you know. Yes, the outcome is the siren, is the mermaid. It was quite an obvious work to make, uh, but the collaboration, I think, meant more mm. than the actual work. That's a really post-human thing as well, that sort of networking and forming those relationships and working together to create something new and non-binary. And both you and Constantine, or Anthromorph, the way that you both are, your artwork is inseparable from your identity. And it's inseparable from your transitioning journey, but also that connection that you have with the ocean from growing up around the ocean. And the DNA, the transgenesis, this idea of changing your physical body. It's like your art transforms as you transform, but the two are inseparable. Yeah. It's almost as well as if your body and your being is a part of your artwork. And that is something I feel like it almost sounds a bit obvious and it almost sounds like every artist has that. But I don't think they do on quite the same level because I think also your physical transformation is tied up with your artwork as well. Yeah, it does, an art practice, it doesn't necessarily have to follow your private life. You know, many artists, they do things completely different or you actually meet them and they're a horrible person and their work is amazing, you know. I think for me and Constantine, you cannot separate them. We are our work because our body is the work. 
We are the experiment of our own work. We are the protagonists of our work. It's about our transforming identities and our transforming bodies. And through our art, I think we are trying to reach the sort of image that we have our, ourselves, that we cannot find in the human world. We can find it elsewhere. Yeah, that's really interesting. So would you say that you feel like you don't connect with the idea of human, the concept of human? I wrote an essay about it after the expiration of the human being. I think the human being is expired. The idea of the human being is over. We've developed in something else. And I think we are in a very uh, strong moment of needing new terms, new terminology and new representation because I don't know what human beings mean. I don't even know if ever existed, you know. It's definitely a construct and it means something that I don't reflect with. I don't mm. uh, engage with anymore. And of course, technology has sped this process even more. The idea of really transcending our body, we don't care of our body anymore so much. We care more about the activity we do and what we can do rather than actually the body. If we see the internal bodies, it's disgusting. What is blood? People forget they have blood inside their body, you know. Blood and guts. We have a stomach and guts, you know, like what, what is... And shit. Exactly. We don't think of this, so... But I think that's actually a very humanist way of looking at the body in the sense of if we want to move beyond humanism, I think a lot of post-humanism looks at a return to the importance of the body and a return to the importance of the material, like the material earth. Mm -hmm. What are we doing to the earth? How are we fucking it up? How are we treating other animals? What's their physical pain because of how we've treated them? And also the importance of like flesh and how we as human bodies who are like fallible and flawed, how can we interact with technology in a way that is positive and progressive for the planet and for species? I somehow, maybe you don't see the body as important, but I feel like being transgender, you can probably associate with that that your body does feel very important to you. It feels so important to you that you feel this need to change it. Yeah, yes, that's true. I was thinking while you were talking about this book I'm reading by Timothy Morton, Solidarity to Non-Human. He actually talks a lot about uh, Marx, about the idea of the capital and how it has shaped our uh, way of seeing our body and our way of living. And for Marx, like uh, the human being was just a product, you know, it was just a machine that was just not able to understand what they were doing, you know. Whether in nature there is a sort of more of a symbiotic relation, more of like an entanglement relation that we somehow are separated from. I just think that we're very separated from nature. Mm -hmm. I think we don't comprehend nature. Yeah anymore. That's sad, isn't it? Because we're so dependent on it for new technological advancements, as well as advancements in science and medicine. We're so dependent on nature. So to feel that we're separated from it, it's sad. It is, yes. I think the, the solution is to embrace it in a different way. I think the idea of nature as an exotic place, as a romanticized place that doesn't exist anymore. We need to construct other relationships. And I do think the same for our body. I don't think the body is... It is important, but we need to build new constructions, new relationships with it. I don't think the body is a pure being that needs to be followed and respected. I just think because we have the agency of doing whatever we want. And this also reflects to my way of being trans and having completely fucked up my body, like completely. Uh, but you don't mean that, as in you don't mean fucked it up. I mean, I went against its nature completely. I'm like wounding it. I'm full of wounds. 
I feel like in a Puritan way, I sort of go against what a normal body should be. But what mm. is a normal body? You know, that's what I'm trying to say. Mm. And this also reflects so nature, you know, what is nature? We don't have that anymore, unfortunately. I guess nature can be so manipulated, as can the body. We can manipulate and change nature. And yeah. in labs, they're doing such advanced things with nature and other animals. And yet, when people manipulate their own bodies, there's this push against it. Like, that's unnatural. People who are against trans, they'll sort of use that as an argument. They'll say it's unnatural. But everything we do, in a sense, if you remove it from an ancient way of being... Everything we're doing is unnatural. It's unnatural right now that you and I are talking and you're in New York and I'm here and we're talking yeah. through a screen and we're talking through these metal objects in front of us. Like all of this is unnatural. Everything we're doing is unnatural. So like, I think that this is just how we as humans have developed, which goes back to your original point in that the original definition of a human, it doesn't mm -hmm. encompass what we've become now. It doesn't encompass the advanced technological and advanced scientific world that we live in. So we have to change our way of thinking about what the human is. And like you say, maybe not have the word human at all. Yeah, I think human is limiting. Who said I need to have two legs? Who said I need to have 10 fingers? Who said I need to have two eyes or two ears? Neil Harbison has a new organ that we don't possess, you know, like mm -hmm. machine can do things we cannot do. Waves have echolocation. Plants have the ability of changing sunlight into energy and, and we don't you know, but we could potentially, why not? You know, this is when I think once you understand the artificiality of ourself and our life, then you sort of gain agency and use it in the right ethical way, I would say, you know. And there's a lot of lawyers who are going into post-human theory because, you know, it's a really interesting area and technology is moving so quickly and advancing so quickly that the law can't keep up. So I find it interesting in the world of law, thinking about how can we ethically do this and how can we ethically advance whilst hopefully not fucking up the planet too much and not killing off loads of animals <laughs> in an ideal world. Mm -hmm. Yes. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe or press the follow button to get the new episodes and take a second to like, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people find it. You could also share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You mentioned Neil Harbison there, who is an actual cyborg. He has created and designed and attached an antennae to his head. Yeah. He's colorblind, isn't he? Yes. And his antennae helps him to perceive color because it kind of vibrates. If he looks at a painting, his antennae will respond to the colors so he can experience color through his antennae. So in a sense, he is transhuman in that his body is advanced beyond the normal human. But you've done some work with Neil, haven't you? What work have you done with him? So actually it was Neil Harbison who introduced me to the word transspecies because when I first met him after transgenesis, he was very interested in that performance. And we met and I was talking about posthumanism. I would word they use posthuman. And actually it wasn't Neil, it was uh, Manel de Aguas, another cyborg who has two little wings in his head to perceive atmosphere, pressure and humidity. Oh, wow. And he actually came to me and he said, we don't use that word. I was like, okay, sorry, <laughs> but what do you use? He said, we use trans species. Okay, wow. When I heard that, I was like, ah, 
First of all, it was a sort of welcoming in their family, you know, in their like cyborgian, transpecies, weirdo school family. And I was like, <laughs> yes, I, I felt, I felt hugged, you know, embraced in that world. Yeah, that was, that, that was a very important meeting for me. So we started to talk and he showed me where he has started a cyborg society and he's very serious about it. He wants to give this option to human beings to become cyborgs for free. And this is crazy. This is amazing. He's so generous. And he helps you to develop an organ, an exosense. Uh, exosense is what I'm working on. I, I'm working on a sense that I can remove and put it back. I, what, what do you mean by that? It's a sense that I can choose whenever to activate it or not. And it doesn't interfere with my morphology, as Neil Harbison. His antenna is an actual organ. He cannot remove and he cannot choose when to activate it. It's like a proper sense. Oh, he can't remove it. No, he's always on. You cannot choose when to listen or when to see. So that's why it's a proper organ, because he will always feel vibration in, wow. uh, in his scalp through, through this antenna. He's not comfortable with the word posthuman, but he is comfortable with the word cyborg. This was with Manel de Aguas, not with Neil. No, I did not have this conversation with Neil. But I wonder if, um, I wonder why. That's actually true. That's actually interesting. Yes, that's actually very interesting. He, he must accept the word cyber because he called his society cyber society. Yeah. And then there is a wonderful talk that he did at TED where he explained everything. Such inspiring talk. But Manel de Aguas, he wants to get more in tune with nature. So I think he felt transpecious. And he's the guy with the wings. Can he take his wings off and put them back on again? Yeah. When I met him, he was working on a way to make them more permanent. Mm, okay. He rarely removes them because he's also used to it because those things, they produce something in your body. So for example, the antennae is always vibrating, always in Neil's scalp. So it's, it's a sense that he now has embraced in his body. And the same applies to Manel's wings. They always do something to his head, sometimes lower, sometimes higher. So, of course, unconsciously, you kind of accept it as a sense. And when you remove it, you do feel weird, mm. you know. So he were telling me this. When he doesn't not have those wings anymore, he does feel something is missing because he's so used to that vibration and that connection with mm. with the extension it's, it's a limb it's have an arm imagine you wake up and you remove an arm you do feel weird so what do the wings do exactly they are connected with atmosphere station so whenever the atmosphere changes the wings will vibrate accordingly so they can perceive i think it's pressure humidity and temperature and there are three different vibrations for each of them it's something that is not constantly changing, you know, because you have atmosphere changes are very delicate. If he's in a plane, it does change a lot. If he's in the mountain, it does change a lot. It's such a commitment, isn't it? It is, yes. To this lifestyle. It's a need. I think it's a need. It sounds almost as if for the cyborg community, this need that they have to transition to be cyborg, obviously it's not similar to gender because it's different, but there's this need, this transformative need. Totally, yes. Thank you for saying because actually I was so amazed by meeting Neil and he was like, Agnes, you're not different from us. And he said, you're already cyborg. 
And yeah, it's true. Like not only I artificially am changing my body, but these things that you just said, you know, this need of changing and transforming, committing yourself into becoming something else is so important. Mm. And hence why now I was finally able to develop a project. I went to Barcelona collaborating with a prosthetic artist. It's a helmet that is allowing me to perceive ecolocation like whales. Wow. So hang on, where do you wear this helmet and how do you hear the whales? No, I don't hear the whales. I'm going to have the same sense of whales. But you anticipated me. Basically, I want to develop it further to make it waterproof, which is a big challenge. And therefore, under the water, I will be able to not only perceive whales ecolocation because I'm going to have an ecolocation organ, but whales will be able to perceive me. Oh my God. Because they will hear my sound coming out. Because basically how it works is I have a helmet and there is an ecolocation, a small device that sends constantly a sound. Every time the sound bounces with an object, it comes back. This is outside the water because it was easy to make outside the water. I can wear it every day. I'm going to feel because it's a feeling, because I'm actually translating echolocation through vibration. I'm gonna feel objects or people around me through vibration. If I feel vibration strong in my cheek, it means that something is closer to me. So clever, that's really exciting. Mm. I chose that organ because it reminded me of whales and I have something very deeply connected with whales. So I, I wanted to feel closer to them. And then I'm projecting this under the water to be able to connect with them and perhaps be the first transgender women to connect with <laughs> with whales. No, but there is a project in San Diego in California called Project SETI, which I'm trying to get in touch. I hope they're going to listen to this. Say, who are they again? Project? Project SETI, C-E-T-I. And basically they have an, a laboratory in California where they're developing artificial intelligence that will able to understand Wales languages and interfere with them and talk to them back. Science were able to understand the differences in wave communication. It's just that we are not able to produce back a sound. So they're trying to talk to whale and have them reply. How poetic. I love it. Yeah. From one species to another. Exactly. That's proper transspecies relationship. I wanted to ask you about your work in fashion because you have modeled yeah. for Valentino and Gucci, both big Italian fashion houses. Yeah. And obviously you're, you're used to using your body in your art. You position your body in your art. And I wanted to kind of ask you like how it felt to be a model because in Valentino, you're in the campaign that you're in, you're nude, aren't you? And actually, am I right in thinking that with Gucci, you modeled before your transition? Yeah, yes. And then Valentino. After, yes. You were modeling nude with, with other transgender models. And it's such a, the Valentino shoot is just amazing. And there's video clips of it as well. It's set outside and it's really kind of ethereal. And it's like your goddesses. That's what it feels like. It's your kind of these beautiful goddesses or like non-binary goddesses, let's say. But yeah, talk to me a bit about that, your experience as a model and how that felt for you. So um, I think Gucci was like, we hear them coming because everyone in Rome, they were 
just talking about how I would fit with Gucci and how Gucci would be a perfect fit for my work. Because Gucci is so related with art. Well, now that Alessandro Miguel is not there, we don't know what they're going to be. But I think the priority for Gucci was to really collaborate with artists. And I did this first show, Squid Dinner, and like everyone who came was like, oh, Gucci will love it, Gucci will love it. One day they scouted me, they were like, ah, that is you. Actually, they told me that Alessandro Michele saw me at the theater in Rome. <laughs> and they really wanted to have me as an artist in their new menswear collection. So at the point I was non-binary, but I was still like a boy. <laughs> so I decided to do it because for me it was such a cool opportunity to model for such a big brand. I was like 21 and they gave me a lot of visibility. And I think from there, like really my artistic career had a push. And in Italy, you know, how people are like, it can be dangerous to work with a brand, but but if you do the right thing, it can be very helpful. And I think Gucci was the right thing at the right time. The problem is that now everyone knew about this collaboration. So people who wanted to do like an interview with me, they would consider me as the former Gucci model, which I hated it. I didn't like that. Because mm, you're an artist first and foremost. Yes, exactly. Mm. But then you said that the brands had this, you know, you just mentioned it there, sort of you have to be careful with your relationships with them. And yes, Valentino and Gucci are such big fashion houses. They're in competition with each other, right? Correct, correct. Yes, you're right. I don't know how they took it, but then I did Valentino, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm still in contact with the Gucci team and they're wonderful people, you know, like we, we go out in Rome, they're always... They want to know what's going on. And then suddenly I do these things with Valentino, you know, which is the, the big competitor of uh, Gucci because he's in the same city. Probably Gucci won't work with me anymore because I did Valentino. These things can happen, you know, they really take care about their image a lot. I didn't care. I, I still don't care because it's not my priority, you know. I actually find it funny, all these dynamics. I didn't sign a contract with Gucci, so I felt free to do Valentino also because they were paying very well. And uh, at that time, I saw it as money I could invest in my work, and I actually did. So yeah, and then the shooting was wonderful. I think we had an amazing time in this beautiful villa with all trannies, the staff. They were misgendering Alba because they were not, in Italy, they're not trained. They don't do like meetings. Hello, we are just, it's so easy not to do it, <laughs> but they just don't do it. We're about to do a shooting with transgender people. Use the correct pronouns. This person uses she, this person uses he. No, they don't do it. But we felt so cool, so beautiful that we didn't care. We're like, ah, who cares? You know, we are the stars today. But it was all transgender models and... Yeah, non-binary transgender. Why do you think the designer chose to... Who is designing at Valentino? What's his name? It, it was organized by someone else at the shooting. Okay. Who organized it? Actually, the photographer, Alessandro Merlo who's also trans, and uh, they were assigned by the designer to do a fashion shoot that would celebrate and that would embrace body non-conformity, gender non-conforming people. And so Alessandro, the photographer, contacted me. I see. We had a great time. I wasn't very sure of if doing it or not because I knew I was going to be naked. And of course, this is a very obvious statement. You know, we are naked, we are trans. It was like very obvious, you know. And it's something that maybe other brands, they don't really do. Like you see Mugler, you see Balenciaga using transgender models, but they don't put them 
make it there because you know we don't need to you know what i mean we don't need to show off too much but other than that i think we were brainstorming and we, we said like valentino is a brand that would never do it you know it's a very conservative brand valentino normally Yes, they might never do it again. So we must do it for the trans people in Italy, you know, for the trans kids who see this, you know, like we have to do it for this, even though it's too, you know what I mean? It's like too obvious. Like I'm putting myself naked there, you know, we don't need another trans naked body to just say, oh, we're trans, you know, like we can go over that. But we were like, let's just do it. In Italy, I think we still need it. <laughs> in Italy, we still need it. <laughs> It's such a kind of conservative country and also still very wrapped up with religion, obviously. And I feel like Valentino yeah. is like this kind of emblem of old Italy. You know, it makes me think yeah. of, I probably, you know, rich old ladies are wearing Valentino and it's very traditional and conservative. So I think yeah. it's pretty powerful doing that shoot. Yeah, but the comments, the comments under the our shooting of people with the emoticon vomiting. Uh, the amount of hatred. Transphobia. The amount of transphobia, it was incredible. Something that in other brands like Gucci, it doesn't happen, you know. Mm. Uh, but that's why it's even more powerful. Yes, exactly. They were confusing seeing such a high level, hot couture, uptight brand associated with this sort of monstrosity, you know, beautiful monstrosity. You know, and people were like, what is going on? And that was actually what they, what Valentino wanted. And they succeeded. I think they succeeded. But now they represent drag queens, you know, they have drag queens at their parties. And I think now they're... Yeah, there's been a big shift, hasn't there? Yeah, a needed shift. But yeah, I think in a sense, if you're only, you know, like you said, it, it got the worst transphobic responses. But if we're only kind of shouting within our echo chamber, then there's no point. Like you have to be challenging people and normative assumptions. Otherwise, we'll just stay in our separate groups of these people think this, these people think this. So I think actually it's a really good thing to challenge, challenge people's assumptions and beliefs. Yeah. The other modeling thing I was going to ask you about was you were on the magazine cover for Flash Art International. Yeah. With the title over the cover, which said Superwoman Issue. You look like a mermaid in that cover. Yeah. You look like a siren mermaid. You've got this kind of, you're underwater. So your hair is doing that amazing thing that hair does underwater where it's kind of like no gravity and moving around. I was wearing a wig. <laughs> Are you? Okay. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Don't take away the magic. Amazing wig. Wow. That wig was amazing. But you're, you're looking into the camera and you look, I think you're meant to look like a mermaid in that image, right? Yes. And then it was shot by Nicolas Falz and, and Sir Monde, which they are amazing photographers, amazing photographers. They really transformed me. I don't know how they took that shot. It really looked, it doesn't look like me. Unfortunately, it doesn't look, it, it looks so unreal that it doesn't look like me. Yeah. So beautiful. It does look kind of almost as if it's an animation of you. Um, but the slogan that came with that magazine was, we need more women with a D which was so punchy. Obviously, D, for those who need to know, D is for dick. And we need more women with a dick was like the slogan. We need more women with a D. And that prompted a lot of, you know, a big reaction. And obviously, there's a lot going on with TERFs at the moment. TERFs are radical, often lesbian feminists, not always lesbian, but 
the stereotype is radical lesbian feminists who are very anti-trans women because they argue that trans women are born biologically male and therefore still male. And TERFs, these radical feminists, really focus on biology. But to an extreme level, it's a bit like looking at any fundamentalist group. It's a kind of extreme hate that fundamentalist groups can, you know, push into the media. So this slogan, we need more women with a D, is particularly provocative because it uses the word woman. And I just love how provocative it is because it came out in 2021. And I think that there's a lot of talk at the moment. I don't know, but there definitely is in the UK about this tricky concept of like your biology, what you're born as, and a lot of women you know, turf women are very anti-trans women. So this slogan, it felt very brave. And it also, it really very much outs you as trans on that cover, that slogan, doesn't it? Because no one would have known actually without that slogan. So I wanted to ask you about that process and who decided on that slogan. And because I noticed on your Instagram, when you posted it, you hashtag the slogan, we need more women with a D. And yeah, I just wanted to know, like, who came up with that? And how did you feel about it? And what was the reaction to it? So, yeah, basically, oh yeah, no one would tell, but that I, there was a trans girl in the cover, but, but we made it very clear. We made it super clear that I was trans and everyone, everyone in the editorial, in the um, magazine, everyone made it super clear that I was trans, which kind of upset me. Beyond that slogan, you mean? Yeah, I kind of upset. Uh, I kind of regret saying that. I think I think that slogan, yes, was provocative, but it sort of uh, went. Uh, it was like an addition to reiterate the fact that I was trans. The fact that there was a trans person in a women magazine. First of all, having a women magazine is already something problematic. <laughs> That in Italy there is this magazine called D for Donna. Donna means woman, and it's the section of the Repubblica, which is the main newspaper. So it comes with the newspaper. You have you buy the newspaper, and then you get the the D version. It's like for the women, you know, which is kind of crazy. And then what, what was cool for me is that I was the first transgender woman to appear in that cover, you know, after like Beyonce and Marina Abramovic. In that magazine? In that magazine, yes. Wow. That felt like on one side bad and good, you know, bad because I should not be, it shouldn't be me the first one, you know, in 2021. Yeah, you're right. But at the same time, it's it does still show something's happening and you're part of it. But yeah, you're right in that 2021 is quite late. We all wanted to provoke. We were like, you know what? There is a transgender artist everyone wanted. And I sort of felt, uh, um, I felt I could not do elsewhere, you know, I felt like, okay, I felt a sort of targeted in a way. Do you feel like it was positive, that it was a positive reason that they were doing it? Or do you feel like it was a way to promote the magazine or both? Both. At this point, I think it was both. We need cover magazine with trans girl, we need new representation, but... We don't need to make it so obvious, you know. On the flip side, it's still brave of them because they will lose they will lose people from that as well. They'll lose customers. Yeah. You mean they lose customer buying? As in, you know, like what you were just saying then about it's partly a trend. Uh, not trend, it's partly, they're partly using it because they want to get attention for the brand or for the magazine. And it's partly genuine. It's a bit of both. But I think they're getting attention, like the Valentino shoot or the cover, they're getting attention, which is positive for anything. They always say there's no such thing as bad press, like get yourself noticed. 
But on the flip side, there will be loyalists to that magazine who they will have also lost in a sense. So there is still a bravery to it. Yes, yes. No, it was, it was cool to be in that magazine because it's the sort of magazine that my grandma would buy, you know? That was the best thing. Like every grandma's in Italy, uh, that was special. I think that was, that was nice. And yeah, what else? I wanted to say something else. And with the slogan, maybe was it about the slogan? Yeah, yeah. I think the slogan became something like, let's make a statement. Let's make it big. The fact that you... You are the first trans in the magazine. So she really wanted to do either superwoman, superhero or trans woman, I think. This is unfortunately where Agnes's recording randomly got cut off, which is such a shame. I have no idea why. I'm still learning. But luckily, we only had a few minutes left in the conversation. And this is where I'm going to insert a short voice note from Agnes to help me round things off. Thank you so much, Lydia, for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. And I think our conversations have always inspired me to keep going, keep researching on these impending topics and keep me updated with any of your further developments with your research. And again, I thank you so much for having me here. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening to Bodies in the Post. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Agnes question mark. And thank you so much to Agnes for being so open and wonderful to chat with. 